if you guys would grab your Bible, stand with me. Um, and uh, we're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 2. Um, and uh, the, we're going to be on page 530 in the Blue Bibles if you're using one of those. Um, and uh, this is Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 22. Um, before I begin, before I read the sermon text, I want to let you know some of you, I think, know this. Some of you may not know this, but um, especially those of you online. Um, that this week, uh, Nita Fleener uh, lost her husband, uh, Gene, who had been uh, just really ill for several years, had had uh, just a ton of health issues. And um, this morning, as we're worshiping here, Gene is worshiping around the throne of God. And so um, we, I've been with the family a couple times, and I'd like to just ask you before, we're, we're obviously going to pray after I read the sermon text, but I'd like for you guys to just, Join me in praying for Nita during this time that maybe none of us here know what that is like. And so let's just take a moment and lift up Nita and the entire family. I know Danae obviously goes here as well, uh, Jean's granddaughter. And so uh, let's just lift them up and ask God to, to minister all kinds of grace that they need right now. Heavenly Father, we um, are so grateful to be brothers and sisters with Nita and Danae and God by extension the rest of their family. And Lord, right now, um, there was a little bit of, even with all of his struggles and health, there was a little bit of suddenness to uh, Gene's death. And, and God, we, uh, we are comforted by the fact that Gene is with you now and that all his health problems are over, Lord, and, and he is uh, dancing and singing in your presence. And Lord, we trust you with Gene. But Lord, there's a family here that is... Uh, feels like a bomb went off in their life. And so, God, we love them, and we want to, to cry out to you to let your grace flow mightily like a river in their family, God. We lift up Nita, that you would hold her grieving heart, Lord, and, and cause her to uh, to not waver, but to trust you more, Lord, and to, to, to see more of your evidence of your grace all around her, Lord. We pray for Danae. We pray for the children, the grandchildren, all of the people that, that Jean has left behind. And we pray, God, that they would see just the impact of a man who loved you, God, and, and, and over and over again as they uh, consider what he meant to them. And God, just that we pray for them as well, that you would comfort their hearts and that uh, you would uh, cause their their family to be tightly knit together, Lord, and, and, and uh, with, with cords of your grace. And so we thank you for all of this. Lord, we just surrender their hearts to you, their lives to you, and again, ask for an abundance of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so we're going to begin Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And this is what we read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, uh, had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Thus says the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and ask that you would do the miracle that we ask week in, week out, that you would bless this word to us so that it isn't just words on a page or words off an app, Lord, that it would be your living, breathing, life-altering word and that we would be strengthened and encouraged by it. Lord, we pray that your word would work deeply into us to work repentance and to work revelation and and to work joy and and, uh, comfort in the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that you would enable me to preach um, with clarity and authority and wisdom, Lord, and that, uh, uh, that nobody would be harmed by anything false that I would say, but that you would set a watchman on my, on my lips, Lord, that I would not uh, say anything that strays from the intent of your word. God, I thank you for this. I thank you for your people. I thank you for uh, the fact that you are here and you're present and you're with us right now. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So last week, um, uh, we talked about how God had promised King David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And from a human perspective, let's be honest here, from a human perspective, it would seem that the the kingdom of David seemed to fail. That doesn't sound too spiritual, but it's just true. From a human perspective, it seems like the kingdom of David uh, failed miserably. Think about it. It was ruled for most of its duration uh, by wicked, wicked kings. And eventually it was conquered by its enemy, by her enemies, by Israel's enemies and exiled away from the land that God had promised them. So our question that we have to ask, and sometimes we want to avoid hard questions, but if God promised David that one of his sons would sit on the throne of Israel forever, where was the promise of God? Did the promise of God fail 
with the passing of David. And so this passage that we read this morning, it takes place, uh, Peter is preaching, and it takes place 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. It takes place 47 days after his resurrection. Um, and it takes place 10 days after his ascension to the Father. Um, this was the day of Pentecost. Um, and in fulfillment of God's promise and the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit on the church and He's given them power in this action of pouring Himself out on the church. He's given them power to be witnesses of His resurrection before a skeptical world. Before a world that not only mocked Jesus, but literally crucified Him. But Peter, I want you to see this, in the passage that we read this morning, Peter makes the point that God's promise didn't fail and that Jesus is David's long-awaited heir. So Peter addresses the crowd and he explains what they've just heard. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know what it is that they've just seen and heard. What they witnessed, what they'd heard, was uneducated people proclaiming by the power of the Holy Spirit the works of God, literally the gospel, in at least 15 different languages that they had never learned. They hadn't gone to school to study these languages, and somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were proclaiming all in, in fluent language, in crystal clear language, the works of God in these different languages. And all the people from these different nations who gathered in Jerusalem from the feast are hearing these things and they're amazed by what they're seeing. But what, what I want you to understand that Peter does, he doesn't just say, wow, look at this. These people are speaking in tongues. This is amazing. Let's sit here and, and revel in this for a little bit. He moves on to the deeper reality and points to Jesus as a king. He clearly portrays Jesus as a king and says, he is not only a king, he is the king that will sit forever on David's throne. And so this was the last verse we read in that fairly lengthy passage. This is the last verse that we read. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. To to say that, that, that Christ is Lord... is to say that he is king, that he's in charge. And to say that he is Christ means that he's the one who's not only king in some theoretical sense, but that that Christ, the anointed one of God, is the one who has the power and the ability to deliver people from sin, from death, from, from darkness. He's the one who's able to do that. And so he says, he's made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so what I want to do this morning hopefully briefly, is that from this passage, I want to answer four questions about the reign of the King who is Jesus Christ. First question that we want to answer is, who is called by God to recognize the reign and the kingdom of Christ? Secondly, we want to ask ourselves, how much confidence are we to have in the rule of Christ? Thirdly, we want to ask, by what authority was Jesus' hold on the kingdom made secure? And last, we want to ask, how was Jesus crowned Lord and King? Or in other words, when was his coronation? What was, what was the event that caused that to take place? So the goal of the message today is kind of like when we took the offering. It's that you and I can live with grateful hearts. And, and more than that, that we can live with bended knees as we daily recognize 
recognize the one and the only one who is sovereign over everything. And that we lay aside all competing loyalties and all foreign loves and we give ourselves to deeper faith in our King. So here's let's, how we'll begin. We're going to begin by looking at this first question, who is called to recognize the reign of Jesus? Now that might sound odd to ask the question in that form because the answer that you would generally get to that, who is called to recognize that Jesus is king, would be everyone. Well, that's not what Peter is saying here, and it's really important. Peter says, quote, "...let all the house of Israel therefore know." He's calling a certain group of people to, to wake up from a slumber, to a, a stupor as it were, and, and to recognize a powerful fact that has come to fruition right before their eyes. So, so when he says the house of Israel, who is he referring to? Well, it's clear that on the day of Pentecost, he's referring to Jews who have gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. But... Don't be too quick to relegate this passage to, to a, a reference to ethnic Jews alone. Those who were born uh, with Jewish blood and who were circumcised and raised you know, with the temple and the law and the teachings. Um, because something amazing is going to happen. If you pay attention to the book of Acts, something amazing is going to happen in chapter 10. As we read further, we're going to see this. Because Peter is preaching this message on the day of Pentecost to almost exclusively Jewish people. Maybe exclusively Jewish people, that only Jews are listening to him. But in Acts chapter 10, God is going to again use Peter, but this time he's going to use him to introduce this gospel that he's preaching to non-Jewish Gentiles. And that's incredible. Why is that incredible? Because if this were just a message for Jewish people, unless uh, there's something I don't know about your heritage, none of us in this room or online would have access to the gospel. So it's an incredible thing that the gospel was opened up to Gentiles. And, and it's even more important when you consider who Gentiles were in the eyes of all the Jews that were listening to this message. They were unclean. They were outsiders. This was a big deal that God had opened the gospel to the Gentiles. It's something that, that, that relatively few people in Jesus' day, Jewish people in Jesus' day, expected. But, but it is something that was probably prophesied over and over in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example of that in Micah 4.1. This is Micah's prophecy. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And peoples, that's a real important word, shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what is that scripture all about? Micah is envisioning God's dwelling place as a mountain. He calls it the mountain of the Lord. And he says that there's a time coming where the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up high above all the other mountains. And it'll be a beacon to all nations. And it'll be, this beacon will compel them to come in and learn his ways and to be governed by his righteous laws. Now at the beginning, 
of, of, you know, before the law was given, before there was a Jewish nation, when it started with one man named Abraham, you'll recall that God told Abraham that in his seed, or from his offspring, which refers to the nation of Israel, which led to the person of Jesus, that in his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just one nation, the Jewish nation, but the, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So what I'm telling you is that from the very word that he spoke to Abraham, the Gentiles were always a part of God's plan. But access wasn't granted until Jesus died. But the Jews of Jesus' day and previous generations saw God as exclusively theirs. He was the God of Israel and only the God of Israel. So what, what made the difference? What shifted here? What shifted was the definition of who the people of God were. The people of God used to be defined by the law. They used to be defined by the temple. They used to be defined by ceremonies like circumcision. circumcision. But Paul tells us that when faith was introduced... When faith came into the into the, the equation, that faith changed everything. Paul tells us because of faith, now Israel is not defined by nationality. It's not defined by ceremonies like circumcision, but but it's decide it, it's it's a, it's defined rather by faith in the Messiah. And their Gentiles with faith in Jesus are included. Paul tells us in the house of Israel. So therefore, let all the house of Israel know. So when you read that in your Bible, you don't have to just skip over it and say, I'm not Jewish. That doesn't matter to me. No, Paul makes it clear. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 2. He says, for no one... Listen, this is so good. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. But none of this, none of this glorious entry into the kingdom of God, for Him to be our God, for us to be His people, none of it was possible until Jesus came and fulfilled the old Jewish covenant so that He could establish a new covenant on, based on better promises. The Jewish covenant was based on on a condition. The condition was this. Obey, keep the law, and you will be blessed. But the new covenant promised salvation and abundant life to those who believed that God had accomplished something and accomplished everything through Jesus Christ. So if you're one who believes, you are, as I said, the house of Israel. And as that, you will know for certain, you will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that He's King, and that He's Christ, that He's Deliverer. If you trust in, on the other hand, religious rites or good deeds or anything else, you are not the true house of Israel. You're not among God's elect. But I pray that the Holy Spirit will awaken you to the truth and that you will truly believe. Second question, how much confidence are we to have that all Peter declared here is the truth? He says, let the house of Israel, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. The Bible teaches that all the promises of God find their yes and find their amen in Christ 
It says that God is not a man that he should lie. And it even goes so far as to say, let every uh, man, or let God be true and let every man be a liar. Yet many Christians live in such insecurity about the reign of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about if you interview a hundred Christians this week and you say, do you believe that Jesus is reigning, that he's king? Most of them, of course, would say yes. But we, we demonstrate our insecurity about the reign of Christ in the confidence that we place in things like political solutions, political parties, financial security, recognition from others, comfort, and in things that we have or want. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, and part of our repentance as we come to bring our offering, is this. Does your life increasingly demonstrate who is really in charge? Do you know for certain, and does your life demonstrate that you know for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ? There are two indicators of a life that is truly submitted to the reign of Jesus Christ. The two indicators are confidence and sacrifice. See, we're not identified as believers by our words. Talk is cheap. Ever heard that before? That we're not identified as followers of Christ by our words or even our best intentions. I've told this story before, but one time I saw, I was in the middle of a church. I was a young boy, I was probably you know, 17, 18 years old. And I saw, I was in the middle of a, of a church that was literally rupturing. It was splitting. Two big factions in the church that were fighting. And, and the Sunday that this all came to a head, people were standing up in the church. And everyone that spoke, every single person that spoke, prefaced what they were going going to air their grievances by saying this, well, God knows my heart. That is not a comforting fact for me. The fact that God knows my heart is terrifying because the Bible says that the heart is exceedingly wicked above everything else. And so our best intentions, if they're coming out of a wicked heart, mean absolutely nothing. The indicators of of recognizing the reign of Jesus are confidence and sacrifice. Even James says it. Every one of you could probably quote this verse, James 2.17. It says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If I have faith, there must be evidence that accompanies that faith. Confidence in Jesus' rule as one of the indicators, is demonstrated first by obedience. If someone doubts the authority of one who is in command, you've seen this at work in places, you've seen this in the political realm, if someone doubts the authority of one who's in command, they're more likely to disobey what that person says. And Jesus pointed out, as it relates to him, this kind of hypocrisy. He says in Luke 6:46, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord?" which literally means king. "Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you?" But that's only one indicator. The second indicator of submission to to a king is sacrifice. The gospels over and over and over clearly teach that there is nothing either spiritual or material that we're to withhold from Jesus because we see by the Spirit His surpassing worth. Meaning to say Jesus is worth more than anything else. 
also makes no sense for believers to withhold anything from Jesus. Why? Two reasons. Because He promises, He promises over and over in the Scriptures to give us everything we need in this life. But He also promises to reward our faithfulness richly in the next life. So what do we have to lose in the light of all that we're promised to gain? If Jesus literally asked us for everything, and here's the secret, He has asked us for everything. If He asks us for everything, what do we think we're losing? To gain Christ? Paul says this in, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, he said, I'll give it up all, I'll, I'll lose everything that I may gain Christ. And I want that kind of heart. I'm not talking down to anybody. I want that heart. I struggle just the same way as you do, wanting to have other things than, than Christ. But, but I want my life to be an indicator by what I'm putting my confidence in and what I'm willing to sacrifice that I know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Moving on, I said earlier, talk is cheap. So I'm hoping that that we would be a people who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, prove with our lives that we know for certain who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we wouldn't be found clinging to our stuff that we think gives us more assurance than we can find in Christ, but let us know for certain that He alone is King. Thirdly, we ask this question, by what authority was Jesus' hold on the kingdom made secure? Is His kingdom a kingdom that will one day end? Is it a kingdom that, that uh, you know, doesn't have, uh, you know, the, the capacity to stay? We've just seen a, a, an incredibly difficult shift in political power in the, in, in the nation. And do we anticipate that the same thing is going to happen with Jesus' government? So by what authority is Jesus' hold on the kingdom made secure? Well, Peter gives us the answer over and over again in the text we read this morning. And what he tells us is that God the Father is the singular power behind everything that Jesus accomplished. God the Father willed all of it, and he brought it to pass. Peter begins the section we read this morning by saying, Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. That's his description of Jesus. And what he's saying is there that, that during his lifetime, God endorsed the, the ministry of Jesus by working through his words and working through his hands. Before the people of his time. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't secret. It wasn't written on golden tablets and hidden under a tree. It was before all the people that they saw that, that Jesus was, wor- that God was working through Jesus' hands and through his words. I, I love the story in John chapter 9 of the man who Jesus heals him of blindness. And the Pharisees just lay into this poor fellow. They just, you know, they want to know who did it, why he did it, how do they know he's from God, uh, we think he's a sinner, all these things happened in this conversation. And John, this man who's so amazed by Jesus' power and healing, he tells his Pharisee inquisitors in John 9, he said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And, and so he's saying that God has already endorsed the ministry of Jesus through teaching and miracles. 
Peter goes on, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What Paul is saying, or Peter rather, is saying with the words definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he's saying this was not an accident. This is not something orchestrated by either Jews or Romans, but that, but that although Jesus was executed by sinners, those sinners were players in a drama that God had scripted. That gives you amazing confidence in the crucifixion of Jesus. That they, uh, the, the biggest example of this is Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and he says, he says, are you not going to answer me? Don't you know that I have the power to condemn you or release you? And Jesus looks him right in the eye, bloody and beaten already, looks him right in the eye and says, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. All of those people were players in a drama that God had already written the beginning, the middle, and the outcome of. Thirdly, God raised him up, Peter tells us, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God had planned, as I said, Jesus' atoning death, but he was also the architect of his resurrection. Nothing in all of Scripture or in all of your life experience can, can demonstrate God's power more than this fact, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Then he tells us that God had sworn on an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. I said already that God is not a man that he should lie. And God had made a promise to David and he watched over that promise. He watched over that promise until that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now Peter points out that now Jesus has ascended to the throne at the right hand of his Father. And in doing so, he's fulfilled every single promise that that, uh, was made to David in a way that was more glorious, more eternal than any national Jew could have ever foreseen. Why is that more glorious? Because let me tell you this morning that as long as Jesus Christ lives, he will be king. As long as God keeps his word and maintains his power, Jesus will sovereignly reign over all creation. Man, what confidence is there in that fact? So lastly, we ask ourselves this question. How was Jesus crowned Lord and King? When was his coronation? This is a hard question in one sense because when we talk about Jesus being crowned King or being made King, we are not implying that there is ever a time when Jesus wasn't in charge, when he wasn't Lord. So what do we mean by that? Well, first of all, we've got to establish the fact that Jesus is and always has been God, King of the universe. What then do we mean? Well, when mankind sinned in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3, we became the subject, all of us, our entire race, became the subjects of serving under sin and the devil and death. And the oppression of these enemies, sin, death, the devil, the the oppression of these enemies had to be crushed by a representative of our own race, of the human race, so that we could be restored to righteousness and to God and to life. And this was only possible by one of us, 
One of us, just one of us living in perfect righteousness so that we wouldn't be under the same condemnation of guilt as the rest of our race. And thereby, if we could pull that off, if we could nominate somebody to stand in our place like that, we would meet God's perfect standard. But you know how that story goes because sin had so thoroughly corrupted us, none of us were capable of of, uh, attaining the perfection that was required by a holy God. So here's where it gets good. Jesus, who was God from all eternity, He was perfect and unblemished, completely holy in every way. He became a man so that he could fulfill everything that we could never be. If you were waiting for me to be the representative of the human race, I would fail you. If I was waiting for any of you to be the representative of the human race, you would miserably fail me. But Jesus became the man so that he could fulfill everything we could never be. In his life that he lived, he always pleased the Father. He obeyed in every aspect in the, in the context of a normal human life. And this is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. People trip over that verse all the time. But it doesn't mean that Jesus could have ever disobeyed. Jesus didn't have to stop disobeying and start obeying. When it says he learned obedience, it means that he obeyed perfectly under the exact same circumstances that you and I live under. Jesus was born to earthly parents. He grew up. He worked. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He was tempted to sin and he was persecuted and rejected just like us. Yet in all of this, he never sinned. Never was his righteousness blemished. And this makes him able to stand in our place to represent us in righteousness. But our problem was twofold. Not just the the fact that we needed a righteous representative. But not only could we not perfectly obey God's righteous decrees, making ourselves desperate for a representative, we had already filled the cup of God's justice with unrighteous acts that required decisive punishment. To let us go, to let us off the hook, would have made God unjust, and that is something that God can never be. God is always perfectly just. But the Holy One who represented us in our righteousness, in the, in the righteousness that we did not have, went one step further and He represented us in sin and in judgment. This is how Peter, in his letter, writes it. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now watch this phrase. It's beautiful. One of the most beautiful in the passage. He suffered once for friends and for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. God regarded the one that was perfectly righteous as completely sinful, so that those of us who were completely sinful could be regarded as perfectly righteous. That is a beautiful thought. So the cross, that awful symbol of the bloody death of those guilty of the worst crimes, became the symbol of Christ's victory and our eternal deliverance. It was the cross where Jesus was crowned King of all because the righteous died for the unrighteous and remained righteous. 
This is why Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now we read that and we we have a religious church Bible background and it doesn't really have the impact on us that it might have for people in the first century because you got to understand uh, you know the cross was capital punishment and and you don't crucify kings you you know the, people don't become kings after they were crucified but Peter is saying that this cross was the very means of this king ascending to his throne it was not in spite of the cross but because of it that Jesus is crowned the king forever. Only in the unfathomable wisdom of God could a bloody tree be transformed into a blowing trumpet that signified that old powers were overthrown, that old enemies were defeated, and that a new king would reign forever and ever. It was on that cross that our dying Savior declared these words, It is finished. And now nothing remains to be done except to believe that we can be freed from sin's deadly sting and from death's merciless grip. And so we should say, as the people of God, all hail King Jesus. Let God arise and let His enemies be scattered. He is King. So three groups of people here or watching online I want to address in closing. There's those of you who have never, ever pledged allegiance to the King. Can I just implore you to do that today? Real abundant life is promised to everyone who will put their trust in Christ. And trusting Him is not about moral reformation. You could think, well, I want to trust him, but you know, I don't know if I'm ready to, to you know, or if I'm able to, is probably a better way to say it, to, to quit all this stuff. Well, that's not the point. Your life is going to change, not, not so you can believe, but because you believed. So that will come later. It's about believing. It's not about moral transformation. It's about believing what God has accomplished in Christ that you can't do for yourself. It's about turning from your sin in a vain search for meaning and satisfaction and clinging, clinging with tight fists to the God of love. Some of you think that Jesus is your king because you prayed a prayer once or maybe even you still go to church frequently or that you live a mostly moral life or that you do some other religious thing with some regularity. But inside you, if you were honest, and I beg you to be honest, you know that you're filled with bitterness, you're filled with jealousy, you're filled with envy, you're filled with lust, you're filled with anger, you're filled with fear. And I'm calling on you this morning, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what religious action you've taken in the past, I'm calling on you this morning to throw yourself on God's mercy and get honest about who you really are and the Jesus that you really need. Skydiving is a meaningless activity if it's a hypothetical activity. doesn't matter. I could get on Amazon, I guess, and buy a parachute... I could keep it in my closet. I could brag to you about the high-quality construction of my parachute. But until that moment that I'm willing to jump out of a plane at high altitude, trusting my entire life to nothing but that parachute, that parachute is worthless. 
point is that that's how many of us are with Christianity. We own a little bit of it. And we brag about how much better that it is than what Catholics and Mormons have. But we have never, ever, ever trusted our very lives to the power of that parachute. We've never said, Jesus is all I got. And I'm trusting Him for my entire safety. And so this morning, for that group of people, I'm saying, jump out of the plane with nothing to rely on with Jesus. Because the promise of Scripture is, He will not let you fall to the ground. This is how the psalmist put it. He said, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On your hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You're not even going to stub your big toe by trusting yourself to Jesus. And lastly, there's people that I believe with all of their hearts, to the best of their ability, they truly love King Jesus. And you want to depend on Him. You want to find your heart, or you don't want to find your heart wavering. And it does so often, instead of trusting Him. And today, I'm I'm calling on you to reach out to Him in faith and ask that He would give you and guide you into a life of greater devotion, of greater worship, of greater sacrifice, of greater service. His Spirit will reveal His beauty to you more and more, and He will cause your heart to be drawn to Him. Just keep pressing forward. To call Jesus King once in a Sunday school when you're eight years old is a lousy thing to put confidence in. I'm not saying that God can't do things. I, I know many of you were, were, came to Jesus when you were children. But what I'm saying is, the declaration of Jesus' rule, of His sovereignty, of His beautiful, caring reign over us, is something that we should acknowledge every single day. It's not a, uh, uh, you know, when I was a kid, you guys might remember these, they, you know, they had the Columbia House Record Club, and, and they'd say, you get ten records for a penny, and you'd, you, or tapes, or whatever, and you'd, you'd sign up, you'd tape your little penny to the card, send it in, and they'd send you your ten records. Well, what you just did is you entered into a club, you know, and, and so every month they'd send you records you didn't want, and you had to mess with getting them back, or, you know, uh, whatever, and, and a lot of us, again, analogy, we, we approach Christianity like that. We tape our little penny to our card of decision and think that it's just going to keep the supply coming. But, but what I'm telling you is that, that we, I, I posted something on Facebook this week, a little picture that said, a quote from Martin Luther, that we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And so I'm asking you this morning, for those of you that truly love Jesus, to just commit yourself to recommitting to His kingship every single day. Keep pressing forward. Would you stand with me, those of you that are here? We're going to receive from the Lord's table this morning. And I want to just ask you to prepare your hearts with just the acknowledgement of what this means. We have two symbols here. Symbol of a broken body. Symbol of blood that was poured out. And so many times we look at this as just an act of memorializing what was done. We look at it as as an act for, you know, us to to you know, get our sinful house in order. 
But what I want you to do is come here with the heart, realizing what that cross meant, that it was a declaration, it was the crowning of the King. And I want you to come and receive communion, and I want you to, to, to uh, have in your heart what I said earlier, all hail King Jesus. Let God arise, let His enemies be scattered. Let the sweetness of that cup and the, and the, and the taste of that bread, let Him remind you that what, that, uh, what was already done has purchased for you a loving King forever. And that you are secure in His kingdom. That His power is, is unleashed for you forever. And so if you would come to take your cup, and since there's so few of us here this morning, I'm going to just ask you to, you can social distance still, but just gather right up here in this front area, and let's do this together as a family. So come on up. These disciples on the last night before Jesus' crucifixion could not have understood everything that he was doing. And yet what he was doing was painting a picture for them that would mean everything to them. That those gathered in that room to their night would, would be so transformed by what was about to take place that they would go to their own deaths because of what was about to happen. They would willingly embrace death because they had found true life. So let's ask that God does that same sort of transformation in us as we share with them as part of the universal body of Christ across all lands and all times in this cup and in this bread. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now think about what we talked about this morning. You can proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we gather and take this bread, we take this cup, we are saying, Jesus is king. And these symbols are, are the symbol of his, of his crowning on that bloody cross. He is king. And we're going to say it and say it and say it until the day he comes back for us. He is king. Let's take the cup together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the body and the blood of your son Jesus that you willingly gave for us. That you, by your determination and by your purpose and your foreknowledge, you delivered up Jesus to be an offering to redeem our souls from the curse of sin, of death, and of the devil. And we worship you not as merely Savior, but we worship you as King, our only Sovereign. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to pray this benediction over you. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.